Hey everybody, welcome to this edition of the Kellen and Alex Show. This podcast was recorded in November of 2019 with special guest Nick Larkins. We were really glad to have him on. It's our first time having him on. We, he's been a repeat uh, customer on the, the, the Kellen and Alex Show. Uh, on this podcast, we talk about the upcoming debate topic on modernism in the church. And uh, we go back and forth with how much modernism has really affected the church, how much the church has given away in modernism. It's a really jam-packed podcast. So I hope you enjoy this edition of The Kellen and Alex Show. Philosophy and HCC, so Nick Jr. here. And uh, he is the vice president of the Veritas Society. I'm also joined with my boy, Alex Stanley, who's the president of the Veritas Society. So one more time. What's the motion for this upcoming debate on Sunday at 7 p.m. in the Gentile Gallery, and what are you looking forward to? So, this House believes that the crisis in the church is due to modernizing the church. This is our upcoming debate, November 17th, this Sunday at 7 o'clock. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting uh, debate. Have you ever done a motion like this before? This general? Or is it is it even general, or is it It is pretty general. I mean, you, you think there's, there's two parts of it. I mean, there's the the crisis in the church part, and then there's the modernizing part. Um, so we're, we're already admitting there is a crisis, right? So this house believes the crisis in the church is due to modernizing the church. And then it's like, well, what is the cause of this crisis? Um, is, it, is it modernization? I mean, that's a, a big question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, when the church has moved into the modern world, especially with the Second Vatican Council, modernizing the way that we do things in the church, modernizing the way that we approach other religions. I mean, this is a huge point, ecumenism, right? We, we go from a state where the church, you know, appears to be pretty closed, right? You're, you're thinking, we believe these certain things. If you're outside of the church, there's no salvation outside the church. And, um, and so that affects the way we approach Muslims, the way we approach Jews, the way we approach um, Protestants, the way we approach everybody else is we are the church, and unless you accept Christ, you accept the Pope, and you accept whatever uh, what all the Catholics believe, then we're not in a fraternal relationship with you. We're in a relationship of we're the church and you're the outsiders. But that really changed with this modernization. We have this different approach to the, the outside world. Uh, going back to Cardinal Augustine Bea and his ecumenical push in the Second Vatican Council in trying to make more unity with the Eastern Orthodox Church and make more unity with the Protestants. Uh, so it's a, it's quite a shift in, in how the church approaches other religions. There's more parts of modernization, right? <clears throat> we have Episcopal conferences, which didn't exist before then. So the idea that the bishops will form their own conferences that can make binding decisions on the people there. Uh, so we have this collegiality notion, right? And that's been hijacked in the United States by corrupt people like Cardinal McCarrick um, and Cardinal Bernadine who are both disgraced now. But they were the ones who were the originators of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is meeting now in Baltimore. So we have uh, the uh, ecumenical movement, the ecclesial um, movement towards the episcopacy rather than the papacy. And uh, we also have a lot of new theology that came out in this modernization. Um, a lot of new theology that you know is, is on the brink of challenging traditional Catholic doctrine. I mean, we can already see this with like Father James Martin and his um, LGBT tour that he goes around everywhere. Uh, they're holding an event at Fordham University, a Jesuit college, and uh, it's it's intended to uh, have LGBT leaders uh, teach the church. I'm gonna let the air hang on that one. 
Um, so anyways, is this modernization that we're seeing the cause of the crisis? Um, you know, that's going to be where the debate's going to lie. What do you think, Nick? Well, as much as I support the debate and the motion behind it, I think it's important to get into a definition of what modernization <coughs> is. And I think the debate, rather than focusing around these various elements of modernization, as my uh, esteemable colleague, Mr. Denley, has put it, <laughs> I think we'll most likely get into a debate about what it means for the church to be modern, what modernization is, and how it's properly understood. Because it's important to even look at the church historically and see that modernization has actually been crucial to the development of orthodoxy in the church. Say, for example, the adoption of the term homoousios would have been considered uh, modern at one point in time, but that's an incredibly important distinction from homoousios or heterousios, both of which were sources of early Christian heresy. Um, think about the adoption of Mary's perpetual virginity as a doctrine. That also was a modernization of the church, and even relatively recent compared to other things. So the debate can't simply be that all modernization is bad for the church. But what does it mean to be modern? What is the difference between development of doctrine and modernization in terms of adopting modernism, which of course is something that all of the recent popes have invaded against with their encyclicals? Um, and I don't think that the terms are necessarily equal. So in my opinion, I think the debate will probably focus around modernism. What is it? And how is that related to modernization within the church? So you think a lot of this debate is going to be, there's going to be a lot of history of the church being brought out to understand the more modern state of the church. Well, I hope so. Um, I think any debate about the church and the institution as old as it is will necessitate an understanding of the church historically situated. Whether or not it will involve a historical understanding of the church is anyone's guess because that involves quite a bit of understanding um, and church history, which is unfortunately lacking in most lay Catholics today. But it is my hope, in fact, that we'll see a historical dimension of the church come out so we can properly understand it and situate the crisis of modernism within the church as a whole. Do you know, or are you familiar with modernism and what it is in principle, like when it came about, I don't anything really regarding know modernism? Just, modernism is just right. kind of like the people, I don't really know how to like describe it. Isn't it just kind of like... I'm going to let Nick field it. So know, how would you, Nick, how do you describe modernism and like its history, its progression, how it came about, um, that type of stuff? Well, we can go at this question together because I think we'll, we both have valuable insights. But a real easy way to understand modernism, um, maybe in, in a simple sense to begin with, um, is a destruction or revolt against all things traditional, all things in the past. Um, there's a great little example that is often used. you got a guy standing on a plank extending over a cliff. And the only thing holding that plank up is tradition. And the guy at the end of the plank is holding a gun towards tradition. And the guy at the end of the plank represents modernism, which is in to say that if he were to do what the modernist wants to do, that is to kill tradition, eradicate tradition, get rid of it, the very ground upon which the modernist stance himself is taken out. So it is contradictory. It is self-defeating. Um, but it's a tendency that we see in all kinds of areas of even American life today. But most importantly, and I hate to use the tautology, modern life. Um, what, would you, <laughs> what would you add to that, Alex? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically around that. And, and also, to add on to that, it was the heresy that the popes before the council, you go back even to like, to Leo, Pius IX, Pius XI, Pius XII, obviously Pius X, um, with their major encyclicals, always talked about modernism as being, and in fact, Pius X called it the synthesis of all heresies. So, the fact that we're having a conversation about what modernism is, yeah, good point. The fact that it's not being brought up today as much um, is really—it's it, somewhat telling. But uh, it was really, really condemned back in the day. I mean, it's 
it goes to every part of our modern understanding. So the separation, the, the separation of church and state. That's a modernist approach, and it started with the destruction of the papal states, uh, where the idea of the episcopate and the, especially the papacy owning property, that was completely done away with. That was one of the errors condemned in the syllabus of errors by, by Pius X and also by Lamentabili Sane, another um, uh, compendium of errors. Uh, there's other parts of modernism. Um, the idea that the Bible is inspired, but in a weird way, in the sense of not every word is inspired in scripture, but like the whole book as a whole is teaching you about salvation, right? So the Bible's not actually uh, giving you the words of God. It's giving you a like generic feeling of God. You're being connected with God. That's also another modernist heresy. Uh, the heresy that all people will be saved, right? A, a universalism. That's also a part of, of modernism. The ecumenical movement that says, Everyone's a part of this weird spirit of the church, and meaning everyone can be saved out, even outside of the church, right? And what exactly that means. Um, also, of course, the denial of the mass as a sacrifice. This is another thing they go for, that the mass is really just calling Christ down instead of the masses like you're offering Christ to the Father. And I mean, the list goes on. And the popes have over and over again, like written out against it, said, this is the synthesis of all heresies. We need to be on the lookout for it. And there was even an oath called the anti-modernist oath that anyone who was a Catholic in the times of Pius X had to solemnly swear this oath as a teacher, as a professor, as a priest, as a bishop. The pope himself swore the anti-modernist oath. And it was abolished the year before the Second Vatican Council as being something that everyone has to do. Um, but regardless, that's the, the, the modernism. It was, was such a big deal that the church had to respond to it in such a severe way. Uh, you know, that's interesting. So do you think most of the, well, of, out of all the Catholics that have left the church, most of it is because of modernism, this notion of modernism? That might be real difficult to say, whether or not most Catholics have left the church due to modernism. Um, though, if you understand modernism as the synthesis of all heresies, then strictly speaking, yeah, that definitely would be the case. Um, but when you start getting into maybe some of the particular details about modernism, then you can have an interesting discussion about whether or not things such as liturgical abuses mentioned by Alex um, are the cause of people leaving the church. And I think it's obvious that it is. Whether or not those are the sole cause, those things are debatable. But modernism as the synthesis of all heresies is certainly, well, there you go. It's the synthesis of all the problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something to be on the lookout for, for sure. I mean... You think? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, for sure. Like, like if I said LeBron James is the synthesis <laughs> of all basketball. <laughs> I mean, I'd be wrong. It's Michael Jordan. But, <laughs> there you go. But yeah, I mean, Michael it's, Jordan it's to, to go pay attention people. to, you know? Yeah. Garrett Cole's pitching is the synthesis of all pitching. <laughs> <laughs> this World Series, I mean, he's going to get paid like that. He's so. going to get paid, yeah, man. He's, gonna get paid. he's so, still a free agent. But. Who's going to be uh, presenting at these debates? We got Bruce Dexter and uh, Mr. Nate Lemansky are going to be affirming the motion that modernization, that's the problem. Um, and then we have Peter, Peter Flaherty and uh, Bianca uh, Klapperich. I think that's how you say Klapperich. it. Klapperich. Mm -hmm. She'll be, uh, mm -hmm. oh, they'll be um, opposing the motion saying that modernization is not the cause of the crisis. So no professors this time, eh? No professors. We did, uh, yeah, we, we had, there will be professors in attendance, uh, but uh, none that wanted to be like specific presenters. But yeah, there's going to be a number of professors, uh, three for sure, and there'll probably be a few more. So we're actually really excited about that. Uh, mm -hmm. Having the professors be there and like be a part of the discussion, 
you know, encouraging that intellectual culture from all parts of campus, obviously. Yeah. No, I think professors, they're obviously, you know, they, they're more knowledgeable than the students according to like their degrees, you know, but like, I think it's good to have them in attendance because they have a lot of, you know, knowledge to offer. Like obviously Dr. Bruninger with the previous debate, I was, well, it was homeschooling, but he, he homeschooled his kids. Right. right. But, but he, go ahead. Like, I'm just affirming. Yeah, you're correct. Yeah. So basically like he, he homeschooled his kids, but he was opposing the motion or affirming. Correct. So he, he homeschools his kids. He's a father of, I think five. Um, and he freely admitted in his opening speech that he homeschools all his kids, but he was there to argue against homeschooling, um, <laughs> which was really interesting. I think the students got into it because even just something so paradoxical as a father who homeschools his kids arguing against the very thing he did earlier that day, um, it was a lot of fun. And it kind of showed the really the rhetorical skill of Dr. Bruninger. He did a fantastic job. Dr. B. You got to love him. We had Dr. Ware, who also homeschools all her kids. Uh, she was there as well, gave a great speech. Yeah, this topic's going to be definitely more serious than, let's say, that one. Uh, we did our political debate at the beginning on gun control, which went really well. Uh, that was the assault weapons ban. That a was very a unpopular one. opinion that was here a at, great uh, one. at the good old Franciscan University, which I'm very glad about. But uh, yeah, and then homeschooling. And then this one's definitely more theological. Um, crisis in the church and is modernization the problem? And um yeah, I mean, it's a fact. It's a real it's it's a real crisis in the church. I was just looking at a Pew Research study that said, out of all the religions in the United States, the Catholic faith is losing members like twice as rapidly yeah, as like them combined. Yeah, literally combined. Like all of Protestants, Muslims, whatever religion, Catholics are losing at twice the rate at of the the one that's second place. So, I mean, we're just, like, losing people daily. And, and earlier, we had the bombshell of, uh, in August, another Pew Research study of... Like, something, 35%... Like, only 35% of, of, yeah. of Catholics actually believe that the Eucharist is the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do you conduct that study? You just ask them straight up? Survey, like, a ridiculous amount of people. Jeez. Oh, and they're... It's the Pew Research Center. Like, they're, they're, they're solid in their methods. This Pew isn't, research, like, wrong. Yeah, and, yeah. and their margin of error is probably <laughs> less than 3%. Like with regards to that. So, I mean, and that means there's only 33% of people who are Catholic who are Catholic. That's what it means. Because if you don't believe the Eucharist, I mean, if you don't believe that's Jesus Christ, are you Catholic still? No way. I mean, maybe in, in appearances and whatever else, but I mean, that's, that's one of the central down, parts no. of the faith. In fact, I had a, when I was younger, uh, my pastor at my local parish would always draw out the connection between the incarnation and the Eucharist. But those two mysteries are one mystery. The fact that God could become man and the fact that the God-man could become, uh, could change bread into his body and blood. And he says, when you deny one, you'll deny the other. If you deny the other, you'll figure out a way to deny the incarnation. Or you'll get the incarnation wrong. You, you'll, you'll get, get that, that most central mystery wrong. So if you, if you lose the Eucharist, you lose this, this one, I mean, it's Christ. It's, it's literally Christ. And you're losing Christ, right? And you're, you're not going to be a Catholic anymore. I and mean, it's just a travesty. Like, okay, well, let's just address that. Okay, the Eucharist. 33% of people believe it now. How did that ha this happen? <laughs> Modernism. <laughs> Modernism? No, I don't know. But I mean, that's, I mean, <clears throat> what do we single out as that cause? Because that's a, that's a crazy. Well, there's got to, there's obviously, stat. there must be multiple, right? Well, the question I suppose here would be, 
we could even focus on modernism, but not modernism within maybe the hierarchy of the church and modernism within the culture as a whole. I think it's it's absolutely no contest to say that the culture as a whole, most especially here in America and most places of Eastern and Northern Europe, um, have become increasingly secularized to a point that they are actually resembling pre-pagan societies, um, which is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, there's a great book called From Shame to Sin. Things by Kyle Harper. He talks about the, the degeneration and a lot of the sexual demorality of the ancient Roman culture. And he opens up saying, look, this is the direction that Western civilization is heading. Um, and that book was written 30 years ago, something like that. Um, so the question I suppose I'm trying to get to here is, is modernization within the culture having an adverse effect on the church or is modernization within the church allowing the kind of falling away that we see in the Catholics now. And the point that I'd like to leave with this before, looks like Mr. Denley wants to say something, <laughs> is that previously, at least in church history, as Callum was bringing up earlier, it's important to look back to, there have been instances of intense cultural degeneration that the church has managed to push its way through, to survive, if you will. That's the hallmark feature of the Catholic church in some sense, that no matter um, the rise and fall of civilizations or states, societies of any kind, the Catholic church persists. Um, and so it certainly is the case that it has an enduring quality to it. But if the enduring quality is, in fact, marred, what else can stand? Sure. What you got for that? Good point. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. The Catholic know. Church can't stand. Nothing can. Right. Yeah, I mean, if we completely give up everything to adopt the spirit of the age. Doesn't Paul have a line to, I believe it's, uh, is it in Ephesians or Galatians where he says, do not be conformed to the spirit of age of the age, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. There's something about, I mean, it has to be, there's something, there's something necessarily about Catholicism, about the Christian religion that is enduring, eternal and immutable, that it's always going to be the same for every people, no matter the generation. Now, obviously, there's going to be variations within the particular culture, but the heart of the faith and what it means to be a Catholic, like we share that same faith with like St. Cecilia and the early martyrs, but it's in a very different particular time. I and mean, we're living in, you know, uh, luxury here in the United States with all of our modern conveniences. Um, but the same faith that Cecilia had to have in the face of Diocletian um, and her, her martyrdom is you know, that she was, you know, completely embracing the Catholic faith that was in her age, but that's not a radically different than our age. It's just the different times. The faith pre is preserved through all of that. We've had further councils and dogmas. So like we understand deeper some of the, the dogmas of the faith now that we've had, um, you know, the ecumenical councils, we have all these great saints behind us. Um, so this idea that, you know, the modern age represents such a unbelievable time that, we have to just radically change everything. It's just nonsense. And in fact, I mean, it's it's doing exactly what Paul forbade us to do, which is adopt ourselves to the spirit of the age. Because here's the problem. You adopt yourself to the spirit of the age, the age is going to end, right? Like this isn't, we're, we, we just imagine America is going to last forever. I mean, they imagine Rome was going to last forever. If you That's look at the book point. of Revelation, right? That's so point. with the, the beast of Revelation, um, at the time, what John was referring to was the Roman Empire. And the fact that the Roman Empire was because everyone fell down before the image of the beast, right? And what was the image of the beast? It's the Caesar represented when the Jews say, you know, we have no king but Caesar. They're just affirming what the, the world had basically affirmed at that time, that the Caesars are king. They're universal kings. And the empire is never going to end, right? It's going to last for forever. Well, 
if we conform the church to the spirit of the age and like, I mean, imagine the early Christians, they didn't conform just to the Roman empire. They were formed by it because that's where they lived, but they weren't conformed by the spirit of the Roman empire. They didn't start worshiping the, the Caesars. They tried to radically change the Roman empire and they did, and they won. And by the way, we own Rome. Right, or we we sp- we're supposed to now that you Italians have taken it, uh, <laughs> but uh, but regardless, it was given over to the saints of the Most High, like Daniel's prophecy in Daniel seven, and so like and Rome is the place from whence the the faith will go to the, around the world. So we can't conform ourselves to the modern age and just say, well, our times are so radically different, we have to change all of our principles. We we should be trying to radically transform our, you know, pagan secular age in Christ, and and. All of it should be changed for Christ, this renewal of what Christendom really is, and not the opposite. The more we get closer to the modern age, the further we're getting away from the truth of the faith. Alex, you used the word renewal there, and I think it's an important word to use, but I'd like to ask for your consideration that you think about the fact that many people who share a lot of your similar opinions, or at least a lot of the similar emotional responses to the, the state of the church or the state of the culture right now, would rather use the word reversion. That what we don't need is a renewal. We need a radical change back to the way things used to be, right? Like we need we need a new crusade. We need to bring back all the old smells and bells of Catholicism. We need to go back to the way the things the church fathers had it, um, which actually, interestingly enough, is a tenet of modernism to revert back to the way things used to be. How do you understand a attack on modernism that doesn't at the same time simply revert to a perverse understanding of traditionalism which glorifies the past that had its own problems. In other words, how do you think about authentic progress and development without modernization? That's... I mean, like, okay, if a nuke went off of my house, reverting back to my house being built all the way up is not a bad thing. Reversion's actually not a bad in principle. <laughs> okay, so that's a nice analogy and certainly a rhetorically persuasive one. <laughs> I mean, because Rome is reverting, well, yes, but like, I mean, when the barbarians took down Rome and like sacked the city, reverting back to a Rome that actually, you know, had a, like a, a strong le- uh, a leader and like having everything be normalized again, that's, that is, uh, reversion's not a bad thing now, in principle. But now you're equivocating on the term reversion, right? Because technically speaking, unless something exists upon which you can predicate a reversion, you can't have reversion. That's why we speak about something being renewed, something which is brought back into existence or regenerated in some sense, um, which I think is the word that you would prefer to use. So I, I would push back on your use of the term reversion. It seems like you're <laughs> just speaking about renewal, but using my word. This is the vice president and president going at it. They know how to debate. Renewal, Alex, reversion. Renewal, you know, reversion. I, I think, what do you mean uh, by reversion? Yeah. Reverse? Is that is that what you mean by reverse? Like yeah. a, a reversion would be a return to a, a state that existed either temporally or chronologically in the sense of uh, uh, some kind of progression, not necessarily over time, um, although I guess all change has to occur in some kind of time. But what I mean by that, it doesn't necessarily have to be on a time scale, um, but a reversion to a previous state of some sort referenced by the same the same thing if you will so, so reversion is moving backwards renewal is moving forwards is that what you're saying um m- maybe in some sense it's important to think that renewal might take something from the past and bring it to the future if you right will, right yeah um but reversion never does that it <clears throat> takes what's in the past um or it takes what's in the future and brings it to the past whereas something that's renewed might bring what's in the past to the future and it's important to understand both like not all renewals are good necessarily right do you think do you think the world is only going to get more modernist as it goes on? Or do you think that we're going to see some sort of like big switch back to like traditionalism or something? So I'm of the opinion 
of, uh, there's a Harvard sociologist by the name of Carl Zimmerman. He's got this book called Family and Civilization. He basically traces out all of the civilizations, all the peoples that have ever existed. It's an enormous and immense historical work of scholarship, fantastic work. But he basically outlines that there's three stages of civilization. You've got um, the trusty family society. You've got the, um, what's the next one? Nuclear family? Uh, no, right. that's the... Um... Yeah, uh, like the capitalist model. So the trusty family, and then the capitalistic model, and then the atomistic. And the atomistic family, yeah. So in the first, in the first model, um, you've got the family, and in, in a broad sense of the term, your ancestors, your extended family, and your your close family, what you might call your first relatives. Um, are the center of the civilization. In the second, it's merely the nuclear family um, here on Earth, if you will. So there's no reference to the past. There's no really thought of the future. You're not planning for your descendants. You're not paying reverence to your ancestors or thinking of them at all. And in the last and final stage, the atomistic, it's not even the nuclear family. It's the individual. And as a matter of fact, it's the individual in opposition to his nuclear family. So the son thinks about revolting against his father who's holding him back and trying to break free of the home and the model and whatnot. And obviously there's uh, parallels for the mother and the daughter and the mother and the son and the father and the daughter and whatnot. But the point of the fact is this. Carl Zimmerman notes that in the history of civilization as we know it, no people has ever reached the atomistic stage and ever gone back, and all atomistic societies have always been destroyed. And more importantly, he notes that this, the United States is an atomistic society at the moment. Oh, boy. And no trustee family societies exist anymore. So I hold the opinion that I, I don't know what we're going to do, whether it's going to be a reversion, whether or not we're all going to become modernists, but I do hold that this, one way or another, the way things currently are will not survive. There will be some kind of destruction precisely because the principles upon which our society or the <coughs> philosophy of culture we have is built upon, it's self-defeating. It's destroying itself. Um, and as long as we stop feeding them Catholic deconverts, they'll they'll die out. I mean, they're already contracepting away anyway. We just got to... <laughs> <laughs> How revisionist of you. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I had to look at myself last year and say, wow, I'm a modernist. <laughs> like it was a weird realization that my, my theological upbringing in a way, like I, I started with Thomas, um, reading the Summa and I was like, in, you know, in the clear waters and, uh, and, and I got caught up in this idea that to renew the church today we have to, like, at least in the, let's say, in the academic and the philosophical one, we need to take all this philosophy and all this theology, that th this new stuff that we have that's kind of going in all these directions, and we need to, like, bring it back to the center and, and, and uh, take all of this stuff and, like, synthesize it again, like a new Thomas Aquinas to synthesize all the pagan learning and, and then, you know, do it for the benefit of the church. And then you find out very quickly that it doesn't work. <laughs> and furthermore... <laughs> What's that? I was worried you were going to propose that as your model to change the world. No, 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 no. no, no. I, well, yeah. So I woke up and found I was modernist. <laughs> it's like one of those like Groundhog Days moments where you like wake up, you're like, oh, I'm a modernist. Oh, modernist. Wow. Right. Yeah. And then it's like I walked up and I was like, oh, I'm still a modernist. It, it takes a while to like you know detox your modernism. It, it stays in the bloodstream for a while. You know, your liver has a, a lot to process. So, Alex, oh, for those of us who have never been as degenerate as you, can you? <laughs> <laughs> Nicholas Hawkins, can you explain to your average practicing faithful and healthy Catholic what it means to be a modernist? Um, what's it like on the inside? Well, I'll try to provide a non-degenerate answer. <laughs> uh, 
just thoroughly thinking, you can. Uh, it's a great question. <laughs> thoroughly thinking that the modern age represents such a anomaly that we have to go f- so far against our principles to like go out there into the secular world and engage them on their own terms, engage them in their own ways, and then really just play a defense game. Like, oh, well, you know, I'll fight you on uh, the existence of God. And then it's like, what the heck, the Eucharist? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, how do you, if you're always arguing about like, well, I kind of think God exists for these reasons. Like, and then you get back and you're on your knees before the Eucharist. I mean, what does that do to the life of the mind? If you're always in a state of everyone's around around me is is modern, but I have to approach them, not you know say I you know it's the fullness of the faith that I'm I'm professing. It's not parts of it that I really like, and so I kind of preserve it because then you're moving into you know like the the classic uh, oh well you're just Catholic because your parents were Catholic, you know, and then you're like well yeah I was Catholic you know it's you you need to actually be like okay well it's the whole faith that I'm adopting it's it's you know, Thomistic philosophy, which I was totally against like a year ago, but now I'm like way back in it because it actually like preserves the doctrines. You know, you can't fit a Nietzschean system with the Council of Trent. Like stuff like that does not go together. You can't fit Nietzsche and, and like all these modern guys with the Catholic faith. You have to say, well, look, they're outside. I'll engage their arguments maybe. But like, this is the faith. We have to preserve the faith. You can't just engage the modern world on its own terms and, um, and, and having that realization that like, okay, I'm, and then what ends up happening, I, I should mention this, what ends up happening when you start saying, I'm going to engage it on its own, on its own terms, you become your own uh, um, source of what Catholic truth is, because you start saying, well, I think this way to approach right. the faith is the best way. Right, right. And therefore I'm going to push this method of it, which is what I think where the second Vatican council got, you know, uh, what would you say co-opted was by theologians who wanted to make their theology, make the church's theology in their own image, right? And so they wanted to reshape the entire way we think about theology and the way we think about God and about the Bible and about scripture and about liturgy and about the saints, about everything about Catholic life. They wanted to shape it in what they thought was the best for the Catholic faith to address the modern world. So a quick question for you then, Alex. For the faithful Catholic who's trying to discern what someone, or sorry, what a theology looks like that is remade in the image of the theologian versus the theology that's in the image of the church, how would one say, differentiate the writings of Thomas Aquinas and his Summa from the writings of like Hans Kung or Edward Skilbeeks or someone like that. Um, how do we know that Aquinas didn't fall victim to this very same attempt to make theology in his image? Um, uh, obviously, we believe he didn't, but how can we tell the difference? That, that's a good question, a good is how do we know that this person wasn't corrupt, right? even if he seems like the most credible? But I'm not saying that St. Thomas Aquinas is not credible, because that's not true. Right. But is that what we're arguing? Are, yeah. we, are we questioning now, is St. Thomas credible? Well, we're, we're questioning, well, is he, yeah. did he really reshape theology in his own image right, rather than shaping it in the image of the church? And I think it's a wonderful question. Well, I, I, would, I wouldn't even bother asking the question of did he or well, did right, he not. Right, right. I think well, it's quite well, How does he distinguish from like modernists? Right. Like what's, what's the principle behind St. Thomas's approach to theology, which is fundamentally different from the approach to the people that you're now attacking? Right. Yeah. He, he always interpreted it within the um, as a clarification of what the church already believes, uh, right? So the Summa is a, a summary of all theology. And so, of course, there's opinions that he's going to have to make within uh, the theolog- uh, theological discourse. If you look at the structure of, of his Summa Theologi- uh, Theologica, right? The, the question always, uh, it determines his answer, and he always pro- provides all the objections to 
to the correct position, right? And so when he's defending a dogma of the church, of course, the answer, I, I answer that, is always going to re be, be reaffirming the Catholic doctrine. And if it's a question that's a little bit more on the periphery, he's giving his answer what he thinks is best, but he's providing the sides that are, that are necessary. Now, what, okay, well, what distinguishes him from these modern guys who have, have gone away? Um, they, a, a lot of it is a, a um, what Pius, Pius X pointed out in, um, in Pashindi, that they try and go back to the early church fathers, but they interpret them in their own ways. So this is something that we should discuss is a lot of the new theology that we see in the, the, the 1900s, the 20th century, is a return to the early church fathers. But what they did is instead of going back and interpreting them in light of the church and in doctrine, they use them as a pretense to put their own theories out, right? So you have on Balthasar using uh, Origen's idea of the apocostasis, which is a heresy, and he got condemned for this. So the apocostasis is the idea that at the end of time, so Origen, who's an early church father, he was, a, he was the greatest biblical scholar of the early church, uh, probably, well, second to Jerome. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so Origen's this amazing figure. Okay, I say second. I like Jerome, all right? Nick's giving me a weird face. Saint I like was Origen. very Roman. Okay, well, well, look, Jerome's a saint. He translated the Vulgate, yeah. all right? So well, Origen's great, too. Okay, whenever, like, whenever asked Saint Jerome, like, well, he was asked a question. He said, well, ask the emperor, right? Or whatever. I don't that, know. <laughs> Jerome was very Roman. I mean, Jerome was, yeah, Jerome was great. Okay, back to origin, uh, origin rather. Um, the apocostasis, he held that at the end of time, after everything was accomplished, all people and all demons and the devil himself would be saved. It would all be brought into heaven. Now, it's a nice vision, but it's wrong and it's heresy. Because what does that make a free will? If you say that everyone's going to be saved in the end, and and you know what does that make of the scriptures that, um, right that there's those on the right and those on the left, and the the ones on the left go to eternal perdition, and the other ones go to eternal beatitude. So anyway, von Balthasar takes that that spirit of um, you know apocastasis, and he pushes what he he would like to call a reasonable hope that all will be saved, which is about as close to heresy as you can get. <laughs> right? Yeah, it'd be like. Yeah, it'd be as close as you are to like your comforter with a sheet in between you. Like that's how close you are to touching the heresy. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and he's, he's, there, he's right there, man. But he stays away from it because he says a reasonable hope. Now, if you have a reason, like if I had a reasonable hope, there'll be an ice cream truck outside and I'll get some ice cream. Like that's, you know, that's pretty unreasonable because I've never seen one here. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's even worse than that because we have like so many indicators. Just look at Fatima. Fatima, literally, Our Lady says in Fatima. Careful. Oh, no, I was thinking of Medjugorje. <laughs> Sorry. Careful. False. Careful. False. Alex, keep Mary going. Alert. Apologies. Okay, yeah. All right, say a Hail Mary. No, <laughs> uh, but, but she said, right, um, yeah, that there's, there's souls falling into hell like snowflakes, right? And so... And to take that and you say, oh, well, Von Balthasar, right? A reasonable hope I will be saved, yeah. <laughs> Snowflakes, right? Well, snow blows upwards sometimes, right? So it's not going down at all. It's like blowing up. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, the modernist approach, they, they say they're going back to the early church. What they're really doing is cherry picking. They're saying, well, origin said apocastasis. And then Gregory of Nyssa may have said something that like, oh, well, I can take that and start running with it. What Thomas did, and this is something that Thomas did in distinction, he read the father's in light of the doctrines that were proclaimed by the councils, he read the fathers in light of the tradition. He read the fathers in light of the scriptures. He read them in 
always a Catholic framework. The theologians of this 20th century are reading all these guys in a modern framework. Hmm. They're reading it in a framework which already admits of science yeah, and admits yeah. of modernism already. And they're saying, well, you know, because universalism is very nice. Universalism, the idea that everyone's going to be appealing. That's very appealing because then you can, you know, go everywhere and be like, oh, well, you don't have to convert to be Catholic. You can just be a, you know, Indian, Hindu, heretic, demon worshiper. That's fine, <laughs> right? Which is what they are if you're worshiping demons. Uh, well, in Hinduism. <laughs> but regardless, but then you can go on, like, trips to India and, you know, not like St. Ignatius of, uh, sorry, St. Um, Francis Xavier who shows up in Goa and holds up his cross and says, you know, everyone must convert and, you know, come into the church and it's Christ. And then you can go to India and just like, you know, attend a Hindu service because you're a universalist. You're interpreting the fathers in a modern framework and it's to your financial and to your uh, human benefit to do that, which I, I think there's a direct a worldliness to this new theology that it's it's of it's of financial and worldly benefit as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, we talked about the Vatican Bank, right? And everything there. <laughs> you were talking about that. Vatican what exactly Bank. happened with that again? Nick, do you hear about it? Did you hear about that? No, I generally stay away from keeping myself updated on international and church politics. Yeah. Well, we did my all- degeneracy like <laughs> follows from my <laughs> my uh, following of church news. Uh, well, people were misusing the Vatican money, right? The bank. The degeneracy breeds degeneracy. I mean, if you're if you're following it all the time, you'll become one. You know. Anyways, uh, what, what was it again? Oh, the Vatican Bank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It's what a mess. What is really leave it to that? Well, I mean. <clears throat> yeah, this stuff's been going on at the Vatican Bank for a long time. I mean, this stuff, even people from the don't realize how long the these things Bank have is. been going on. Yeah. People don't yeah, yeah. realize how long Well, I mean, in, in John Paul's pontificate, we had, we got found out that there was a, a guy who was in one of the highest mafias in Italy. He was running the Vatican Bank. And in fact, he had taken $10 million of that money and then invested it in some like really, well, criminal venture in the middle of like Northern Italy. Sounds like it was uh, Italian. I, think, I, do I think, that, man. think they were making olive oil, actually. I think they were exporting olive oil. <laughs> How Italian of them, right? Olio d'oliva. Yeah. Literally using, you know, collection money for olive, olive oil, oil for the mafia. <laughs> That's the Vatican Bank, right? And and you should look up the, the case of, oh, man, I'm going to forget her name now. <clears throat> uh, a girl who was kidnapped in, uh, oh, her name was... Um, Emanuela, Emanuela, I forget her last name, but if you type in Emanuela, um, Vatican Bank kidnapping, she was kidnapped in 83 and her father was involved in the Vatican Bank, like super involved in it. And, uh, her, her case has never been resolved. Emanuela Orlandi. Orlandi, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Was a citizen of Vatican City who mysteriously, mysteriously disappeared on the 22nd of June, 1983. Sightings of Orlandi in various places have been reported over the years, even inside Vatican City, but all have been unreliable. Was so this girl murdered case, or something? We don't know. Her case is just <clears throat> nuts, right? So her father's heavily involved in the Vatican Bank. They live inside Vatican City. She goes out for class, and she's coming back, and she actually she was going to go somewhere else with uh, a friend of hers, but the friend had to leave, and then she's never seen again. So this was a young girl that got kidnapped. Yeah, she was 16 years old. And they never saw her again. That's right. And and so, like, the the Italians, uh, the police officers were obviously looking for her, and they didn't know, like, if she was kidnapped or she was just missing or something. And then John Paul II came out with an Angelus, like, a day later, and then asked for her kidnappers to release her. And so, like, oh, well, she was kidnapped. Well, the Vatican knew something about 
oh boy. about it. And uh, according to, so it gets, it gets nuts. So the case didn't really go anywhere. They tried to find her. They couldn't find her. There was all these random stuff uh, coming out about her um, that, you know, no one knew what to make of it. Now we have um, Gabriel Amorth, the, uh, you know, the exorcist guy in Rome. He said that she was kidnapped and used for, uh, I don't even know if we can't say this on air. Um, but regardless, um, so Gabriel Morth has his, his own theory about it with the Vatican police officer, actually, and a really bad case. Um, but that hadn't been ver- verified. Archbishop Vigano, who's now in hiding, he mentioned um, Orlandi recently, and he said while he was in the Vatican that they received a fax from the kidnappers that he was not allowed to see that got transferred to the Cardinal Secretary of State, and the Secretary of State was in contact with the kidnappers, but that, that she was never returned. And this is what Archbishop Vigano has said, and Vigano is the same guy who released his stuff about Cardinal McCarrick, and now he's in hiding because of that, and about Pope Francis. So I, I don't know. It's But uh, look, that's Vatican Bank stuff for you. And, and they're still like in the hole for a lot of money. And uh, oh, to go further, like yeah, the financial scandal of Rome and of uh, the Vatican City I think that you can find a lot of like the moral scandal and the the Amazon Synod that we're seeing now. I think a lot of it goes to the finances. I mean, if you look at Peter's Pence, which is the Pope's like annual appeal. So, you know, like your bishop will do like an like an annual appeal. So Peter's Pence is the Pope's annual appeal. You know, you donate to the Pope and all that money is supposed to be used for charity. 80% of that money was used for oil speculation in Nigeria and for buying a like $15 million apartment complex in London. Alex Denley, the Vatican insider. <laughs> I, I'm not much of an insider. I just like read this stuff. Like that's what it was used for 80% of it. And the hundred percent of it was meant for, right. Because why do they need to make these crazy investments? Because they got to recoup the money that they're they owe to everybody hole. else. Yeah. They're in the they're hole in for the a ridiculous. Hole. So you're going to like do super risky Nigerian oil speculation. Oh, Can you imagine that? I mean, uh, the, the princes of the church doing oil speculation in Nigeria and stuff. <laughs> and there's something to be said about the sin of usury, which perhaps you, you're familiar with, Nick, of the idea of taking interest. In fact, in the Middle Ages, it was considered a sin. The idea that you would offer a loan and then get interest on the loan. So the idea is when you, when you loan it to, like, let's say a fellow Catholic, you're using that money to, because you have excess so you're using that money to help a, a uh, someone else out to develop them so they can pay you back. So you wouldn't charge interest on it. It's modern times and modern economics, so we've got this interest game. So when the Vatican Bank is starting to play the interest game, and then you got the mafia, you know, buying olive oil fields, and then they lose all that money, and then, like, you're in the hole, and then you're more in the hole, and then you're like, well, how do I get money? And then you start doing oil speculation in Nigeria, and then... I mean, to add on to that, the Amazon Synod, which just came out and everyone's up in arms about it because, you know, idols were literally worshipped in the Vatican. And you have all this this document come out about women ordination and about um, the married priesthood. You're like, why is all this stuff going on? I, I think a lot of it is just there's German NGOs that have a lot of cash that say, hey, we'll pay you out if you ordain women. I don't know. Nick, what do you think? <clears throat> My thoughts are less exciting. 
It's one of the reasons why I don't find myself particularly drawn to learning about these kinds of things because I understand that doing so inevitably arouses my passions. Obviously, because I love the church, I love Christ. I want in order to be a faithful Catholic. I want to love the church as much as I can. I want her to do well, as you do with anyone that you love. And it's incredibly difficult for me to read these horrible things about the church, but for one particular reason that I think is often unhighlighted, that there's nothing I can do in the broad scheme of things. We can talk radical uh, activity and that sort of thing. And I think many of the people who are what we might call rad trads, if you will, um, often use this kind of language and rhetoric. But my approach is much more moderate in that I think that the best thing that I can do with my life, as a matter of fact, the best thing that most people can do with their own lives in order to restore the culture necessary for the church to come back to her position of honor and permanence, it doesn't have anything to do with understanding these large, broad scale, if you will, um, insider theories about the Vatican and things that are going on. I don't deny these things need to be known or brought to light. Absolutely not. Um, I, I think that trying to deny them or cover them up is worse. But I do think that there's something to be said for misdirecting your own passions and your own desire to do good things towards the superfluous acquisition of knowledge that's not beneficial. Um, there's a great passage in Brave New World, Aldous Huxley, where um, the savage who's coming to see uh, civilized London for the first time in his life asks how um, the, the controller, if you will, the guy who looks over all of London, keeps his people um, so happy when they have no arousal of the passions ever. He's like, people need to get angry. They need to feel like they're betrayed and then there needs to be some kind of revenge. There needs to be a conflict and a resolution of some kind. That people are built in such a way that they need to have these experiences and it's what drives men to do great things. And the controller says, this is how we get over it. Once a month, we bring him into a room, we sit him in a chair, we put a sting in their arm and shoot them up with all the adrenaline that they need in order to have these emotions and we flush it out of their system. So when they go back into society, they feel satisfied and they don't have the desire to revolt or do anything else. And I think that in many cases, learning and reading obsessively about these things that are going on in the church is sticking that needle in your arm and shooting yourself up with the same thing when you could instead be focusing on your own prayer life. You could be developing your own uh, spiritual and mental, physical capacities such that you are a better warrior for Christ in the world that he has placed you in, not necessarily in the global scale. I, I would definitely agree with that. It's right. almost like it starts with the people, you know? Yeah, I think that's and an like you said, it's ignored part. Yeah, it's not... It's, we don't want to ignore the big problem going on. Correct. We don't There's want to, nothing we don't want... wrong with guys like Alex knowing all about this. I'm glad that people like that exist. I'm glad that people Even like that Even though he's exist. degenerate. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, no I, I, I understand that, and we don't want to ignore that, but we don't want to let it overcome us, right? Uh, yeah, you don't want to let it overcome you, or you don't want to let it take the place of doing meaningful, productive activity on your own end, right? Like, no one's spiritual position is improved because you know the nuances of the Vatican Bank for the past 40 years. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, that's an important thing to know. No, no, it's but, true. But the knowledge itself isn't beneficial and actually could be incredibly detrimental if you don't temper it correctly and if you don't know how to properly order it towards some kind of meaningful activity. If it's not directed, it actually becomes dangerous knowledge because it's knowledge about some impurity on the bride of Christ which would be incredibly detrimental to anyone who cares and loves about her, um, which is why it's important that any kind of knowledge like this be situated within some kind of proper context that isn't just a ravenous desire to fill some kind of appetite which only increases with your consumption of media like this. That's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, for sure. Much agreed. Much agreed. Yeah, I, and, and I think that's a, a real possibility for people who, I mean, there's, the fact that there's a lot to go on is, is also not a justification for it because, I mean, if you look back in time, I mean, you look at the times of uh, like the 1500s, like when the Council of Trent was going on, you had Julius III who promulgated the Council of Trent. Um, 
I can't even say this on air because it's it's too raunchy. But he, he got <laughs> and so really bad. Okay, people can look up Julius the Third. All right, look, there's been really bad parts in the church, right? Um, dark and history. really, oh yeah, and dark and right. Well, our faith isn't based on right. You know right. the the we've the, seen dark it's times not, and it's dark not events, based on. But- yeah, it's not based on the sanctity of a pope or the sanctity of a particular bishop or how well he's running the diocese or whether he's doing oil speculation in Nigeria or not. Like, it's not based on any of that stuff, and um, which is great. Now, thank God. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank God, because you know I think Nigeria is they're in another political unrest. I think aren't they? I don't know. No, oh, it's a mess over yeah, there. Yeah, it's just a mess. Anyways, <clears throat> um, but yeah, it's not based on that. But in defense of it, it's it's also. If you don't know your problem and you don't know your, well, it's the, it's the classic example. If you don't know your enemy, you don't know how to fight properly and you don't know how to solve it. I mean, if you don't know the problem, you don't know how to solve it, right? Um, you know, if your house is um, filled with termites, and you're like, why is it like all the house crumbling around me? Like you didn't know it was termites, like your whole house is going to be eaten up by the time you figure it out, right? Once you know there's termites, you might need to put your entire house under that. You know, have you seen those like bag things they put all over yeah, the whole house yeah. and you're like... Def- uh, what do they even call it? I don't know. Fumigate the whole thing? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, knowing that there's termites everywhere within the church, um, I mean, I, I even sent you that quote from, um, oh, what was it, Father Father Romero? Uh, Antonio Romero. In 1961, he said there are the modernist termites infiltrate all of Rome. And this is back in 1961. And he's saying um, their, their pushing of modernism is everywhere. And I was like, dang, this is back in the 60s that they're saying this stuff, right? We're in 2019. I mean, it's about to be 2020 pretty soon. Um, the fact that there was modernism going back all the way there um, shows that it's still a problem in the church. And obviously to, to think of it excessively and in no particular, like with, with an idea of like, well, I'm going to know about it, but not really care about my faith is obviously really stupid. Um, at the same time, yeah, knowing how to fix the church, it's, it's going to encourage more... Uh, <laughs> you could call it mad trad, but you, it really is going to encourage a, it's supposed to, if it's in its positive, like more reparations, more fasting, more prayer, more rosaries, more holy hours, more like actually being attentive in mass saying, how can I transform where I am at my parish, my particular area to be more um, fully with Christ in, in every way. And knowing more of the problem while it can be, you know, harmful in some way can also encourage people. It's like, well, you know, people have this general notion of like, well, okay, yeah, I've had a friend who said, you know, I had a priest friend and he left the faith and he got married to his boyfriend and he's moving to Los Angeles. And like, how do you interpret that? Like for him, who's not like theologically minded or whatever else, like, how do you, how would you even gauge that? And then if you situate that within, okay, well, there's a lot of problems going on in the church. And, you know, this doesn't affect my faith that this priest that I really like is going off and marrying his boyfriend. My faith is still the same. And then it should encourage zeal to do prayer and reparations for him, particularly that priest, and to, you know, renew the Catholic culture where you actually are. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's, we're living in really tough times. And I, I think it's, it's not as though we don't, we're, we're on our own with this, right? I mean, there's a lot of shining lights. In the church, you look at Cardinal Burke, you look at Bishop Athanasius Schneider. Um, I mean, if you look even more broadly, I think Donald Trump has been really good for the standing for the principles of national, like, okay, we're, we're a nation. Yeah, patriotism. So we reject the, the ideology of globalism and we embrace the heart of patriotism. That's like, yeah, that's Catholics should get behind that. Like, that's, yeah. that's great, you know? 
And I think he's been, you know, somebody who we can kind of latch onto, at least in the political sphere, that's standing for some type of values. He's not a saint, obviously. And he's not a Catholic. Um, so, but there, there are shining lights. And uh, we've been through tough times. And we're going to continue to go through tough times. And it's not going to leave us. It's never going to end. I mean, yeah. but we've seen it. I mean, we've the hope is, you know, we've seen it before in the Catholic Church. But that that shouldn't do us any justice at all. I mean, it should be, we should be working even harder now knowing that, you know, we're coming into some real, like everything that's going on with the pre-sex scandals and the thing with the Amazon Synod and now that in the Amazon in that local region, there's priests can be married and there's women diaconates. That's crazy, isn't it? That goes, that goes against everything. I mean, you I, asked earlier about like, will modernism end? Like, will we see a complete renewal? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I, I <laughs> not in my, maybe not in my it, lifetime. I don't think so. I mean, I'd really like to see that, but um, I don't know. See it on what kind of scale would my question be? Because we're living in a university that would be modernism, right? There are parishes right. in this world that are modernism. There's levels to this. And, and there's levels to it, right? So for the fact that we're speaking here on this podcast with equipment that's only possible in the modern world is not indicative of the kind of modernism that we're inveighing against, right? right? Um, and I think... Part of the difficulty with many of these broad scale or, if you will, global understandings of problems such as modernism is the fact that they always reside in the one place that man never does, in the global. Man is local and man is extremely temporally located, whereas many of these things far exceed man both in their temporal and in their spatial influence, which is to say that globalism, modernism, um, or any of these, I guess that's a synthesis of all heresies. I can stop there. And these difficulties <laughs> which which pervade the church um, inhabit a realm that man doesn't in some sense, except only in perhaps the intellectual. And to pretend as though that we're trying to solve those and we can't solve them there, therefore we can't solve them anywhere, um, is, is destructive in many ways. And primarily, I think, because the most important place it can be solved is in the heart of an individual human being, with, within one's soul. If you can purge it of a particular error, a particular sin of some kind, that that's where it matters, right? So we'll never be free of the sin of adultery. But what matters is that the man who's an adulterer frees himself of that sin in some sense. Um, never Which ever. I think goes with any notion is that it's always going to be there. But we, can, but we can separate ourselves from it. Not every, obviously not everything, but, you know, it's up to us to, like you said, there's that concept of adultery, but we don't have to be associated with it, like in our actual, like doing it. We don't have to do it. Right. It's our choice, but the the concept and the sin will be there because there's going to be people doing it, right? And we and we should and in, in fact our, have defenses we, against the sin, right? So it's yeah. not that it's not that we should never address the problem of adultery at large, right? Um, but in, in many ways, this is an like a, think about the analogy of the family in the United States today. If we were to pass a law tomorrow banning divorce, that'd be a horrible thing, a horrible thing. Now, obviously, we don't want people to get divorced, and it would be great if people couldn't get divorced legally, but the current situation in the United States is such that if we were to pass a law tomorrow banning divorce, we'd have more problems for marriage and the family than we would solutions. That kind of change, the place that we need to go such that we won't have divorce and whatnot, is not going to be solved by instituting the problem tomorrow. Um, Aquinas, if you will, sorry, not instituting the problem, instituting a solution like the one I mentioned tomorrow. Um, Aquinas even speaks about this when he's talking about how should law and morality relate because if you try and legislate every morality, you become a totalitarian police state of some kind. Like right. imagine if yeah. lying was illegal. Yeah. That'd be insane. Um, and so it I'd seems never to, to me, speak. <laughs> <laughs> the thing of principal concern or what needs to be grounded in after having these discussions about the, the broad scale or real difficult um, challenges that the church as a whole is facing over time or over space 
um, is that it needs to be instituted within the human heart, the human soul, the, the human <clears throat> person as a totality. Um, wh where are you as a human person on the spectrum of the only thing that's important for you, which is the achievement of your transcendent end, beatification and union with God? And then what does that mean for the people who are around you? Um, because for most of us, we've been placed in such a way that we're not going to have to deal with what's going on in Rome tomorrow. I've never seen the Vatican Bank. I probably never will. Um, and it's important that I know what's going on, perhaps, right? But knowing what's going on is not going to change the fact that I failed to love my brother beside me today. So if these things and this knowledge and this understanding doesn't inspire within us the sanctification of our own lives and the temporal places that we ourselves have been situated, um, I think it's fruitless in many ways. And we're going to uh, end our first segment on that. We'll give let you sink that one in for a song by Newsboy's Greatness of Our God. been crying out for hope, for a hero to save us. We long for the supernatural. But there is only one God who can save the day. So clear the stage, prepare the way, cause heaven and earth are singing. Glory, hallelujah. Okay, we're back here on WFRSCC, Kellen Lake with Alex Stanley and special guest Nicholas Larkins. So we're going to talk a little bit about Vatican II, I think, and uh, how this, how that council, I guess, shaped modernism in a way, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, sure not exactly, but uh, there, there is a lot back, of there back. is a lot of links. I mean, people would say, I think, 
how how why did you know because that was council was making the church a lot more accessible right right to to society and mm. i think people could draw a lot of conclusions to modernism to that i mean i don't know if we really define it but so i mean well, alex what do you think because is, is modernism result of vatican ii well, modernism existed way before Vatican II, like we right. were discussing. So it, it goes like back more, like a long way. Was it more? Was it like more perpetrated though? Like did it so become that's, more that's evident? A, that is a hotly debated issue, actually. So remember, modernism as the synthesis of all heresies um, uh, is is something that the popes really had to uh, you know address because there's so many evils that we're seeing in the modern age. Right? We're seeing. I mean, you could trace it back. Let's. You know, you go to um, evolutionary theory and the denial of the denial of original sin, the idea that man just evolves, that there's no God creator behind anything, that we're all just animals ultimately. I mean, Nietzsche develop, develops this um, uh, this this idea of the world, um, and so that's even just taking just evolution. I mean, that's a hefty task to have to say, well, how do we address this problem? And then you add on to that, like the historical critical method of the German theologians in the 1800s of going back through the Bible and like critically saying, well, these things are true and these, these things are false, right? So you have all that historical stuff. Then you have liberalism, the whole idea of liberalism, like the idea that um, we're supposed to have these capitalistic uh, models of countries that are... Um, you know, the individual is the basis of everything. And then you have nationalism, right? This big push for, um, you know, you have like Nazi Germany, you have Soviet Russia, and then you have communism. Like, oh my goodness, communism being such a huge thing and going throughout the world. You have like a ridiculous amount of problems in a very short amount of time with a church that doesn't move very fast, <laughs> right? Oh so modernism needed to have a lot of responses to it. In fact, so if you look before the Second Vatican Council, so we have John the 23rd calling the council. So it was a surprise, surprise to a lot of people. So you had Vatican I where you defined uh, papal infallibility. It was a solid council, great council, not a huge ecumenical, like huge, huge council. It was very brief and it was, it was I believe it was stopped after like the first session. Um, it wasn't very long, but they defined papal infallibility. Now, the Second Vatican Council was called by John Twenty-Third, I believe during the first year of his pontificate, he decided to convene a general council. And those who were close to him in the Roman Curia were quite surprised, but they were optimistic. So at the time, you had a lot of, if you look at the, on the continent, the French and the Germans, uh, their bishops and the theolo theologians there in, in Fourier in the South and in, in Germany, in these different schools, you had Karl Rahner, Hans Kung, um, Schillebecks, Daniel Lu, Congar, uh, like de Lubac in France, all these guys, these theologians were part of what was called the Nouvelle Theologie, the new theology, the new theology of the times, which was characterized by like what we've discussed before, resourcement. Resourcement is going back to the early church and picking things that you like and like saying, we need to push the church in the modern age. Now you have all that going on with the French bishops. Now you have the Roman Curia, who are the Italians, a lot of the Italians who are really just staunch they're conservative, they're orthodox, they're Thomistic, they're old school, they're like Pius X guys. Well, I mean, they were appointed by like Pius XII and Pius XI, but they're like old school guys that are like, you know, traditional, here's the faith, here's the faith. The German and French have all these theologians and this, all this type of stuff. And then you situate, situate the time of Vatican II within the time of the world. Communism was huge, right? We have Soviet Russia and it's spreading communism throughout the world. And um, so 
John the 23rd says, okay, we're going to hold an ecumenical council of the church in the modern world. And, um, you know, and so the Curia is like, okay, well, let's get ready for it, right? So there's a theological commission that was set up by Cardinal Ottaviani, and uh, they were sent to, like, make the original schemas, the drafts for what was going to be voted on on the council. So what they did is they sent out what's called the vota to all of the bishops in the world about what they wanted to see happen at the council. So they sent, like, imagine, like, a, a series of questions that the bishops would answer, and they would send back to the Vatican and say, this is what I think needs to be addressed in the 21st Ecumenical Council, the Council of Vatican II. And they sent all these votas. Now, what the two main things that wanted to be addressed by the bishops at the council, do you want to guess what the two main things were? According to the vota. Maybe Nick has a guess. No, okay. <clears throat> two main things. Two main things the bishops of the world in 1961 wanted to see done at the Second Vatican Council or discussed. Ooh, uh, let me think. Hold on. Any guesses, Mr. Larkins? I got nothing. Come on, Nick. You're a Come on. philosophy theology dude. I'm a communications. I don't know guess. anything about this stuff. Any guess? Two main things they wanted. Heresy. I mean, I'm going to say modernism. I was, I was going to say modernism, but... But I don't think I can come up with the second thing. Do you think it was on... Give us a hint. Heresy? Any form of heresy. and Mary. What the heck? Oh, communism was obvious. I feel silly now. Yeah. They was, wanted yeah. a public denunciation of communism by the church and all the errors inherent in communism, materialism, atheism, all this type of stuff, right? And the separation of church and state and the supremacy of the state, which is all included in communism, and, and a clarification of, of Mary and the reassertion of Mary at, at the council and, and her role in the church. Why, specifically why would, as mediatrix of all graces. I can understand communism, but why Mary? What, what was the misconception going? Why did they need to do that? What was going on? Was there a misconception in the church about Mary and her role? Is that what you're saying? There's a lot of factors. You have Fatima, 1918. Well, the which, whole thing with the secret letters or whatever, right? The, which never got revealed. That's never got revealed. Okay. But, but this isn't conspiracy. This is like legit fact. Like her this is role? not some obsessive uh, degeneracy. Like <laughs> this is like I'm being misquoted. That's <laughs> <laughs> what degenerates do. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, her role as maternal mother, as mediatrix of all graces. So the idea that Mary, not the idea, the reality, it's it's a doctrine. Mary is all graces flow <clears throat> through Mary. Because that's what Christ has has uh, her role as the mediatrix of all graces, meaning she is the perfect intercessor, and so all graces go through Christ, obviously, and through through Him, but they also go through the Mother. Why does Mary have to ask for permission if she's Jesus's mother? She didn't ask for permission; she intercedes, right? And anything she intercedes for, she receives because she's the the Queen Mother, right? Like G Christ isn't going to reject the perfect Mother and her request. And so, I mean, Mary comes to the world in the face of all this, this modernism and the face of all these, the World War, World War I that's going on in 1918. She comes to the world with Fatima and says, you know, I want the world to be renewed in my immaculate heart. I want two things, two things for, uh, for you to pray the rosary, to pray the rosary and Russia must be consecrated to my immaculate heart. Which I don't think will ever happen, by the way, but that's just my prediction. I'm being serious. Two things. Two things. That's all she wanted. Pray the rosary. Consecrate the rosary to my immaculate heart. 
That's just like, you know, it's like your your mom telling you to like take out the trash and put a new trash bag in. Like it's <laughs> straightforward. It was what we were supposed to do. Like if you don't do that, I like think it's you a get little wrong? more complex well, when wait it comes a second. to Russia. Yes, maybe. But like she gave us, you know, if you get a to-do list and it says take out the trash, <laughs> let's just trash bag in. Russia. That's uh, the first thing on my to-do list. Let's just well, take a thousand years to do it. Yeah. I mean, it, it should have been. Yes. Okay. It's more difficult than it sounds. It, but yes, I think it's, it's more doable. difficult than taking. I think out it's the trash, doable, though. but it's the same 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 principle of like you get a to do list from your mom. You got to do it. You know, it's it's got to be done. So, anyways, uh, so consecrate Russian to my immaculate heart, or she will spread her errors throughout the world. That is the condition. If you don't consecrate Russia, then communism will spread throughout the world, or the principles. And in fact, it's it's communism's never really died. The principles are still here. Communism just will not never always. Die. The principle. I mean, uh, I, don't, yeah. I don't think it'll ever die. Yeah, I mean, I mean and, and it's it's perniciousness. So the council's called, and they're they're meant to. They, they say we want a declaration declaration of the destruction of you know that the church declares that communism is wrong and it's evil and and don't do it and we hate it, right? Like that's pretty obvious. Okay, well, in contrast to that, John the twenty third, um, and a number of cardinals, especially Cardinal Bea, uh, the Jesuit, they established a line of communication to the Kremlin. And they started communicating with Russia, actually. And uh, because under the pretense that they wanted to, well, I guess it's not a completely a pretense, but they wanted some of the bishops of the East in Russia to come and and be at the council, the Psychopathic Council. They wanted some observers from Russia to come. Now, we should understand what the church in Russia is at the time. She's a puppet of the Soviets, completely. And the leaders of the church there are Soviet puppets. I mean, they, they don't care about the church, really. They care about implementing Soviet policy, right? And they're and Soviet Russia is just using them. They can't step out of line. So anyways, they get invited to the council, and that's the thing that doesn't happen. There's no condemnation of communism directly at the Second Vatican Council, which is, which is really concerning. I mean, that's just one aspect of it. But so anyways, that's what they asked for. The council's convened. And what ends up happening over the course of time is these schemas that the really conservative, really you know strong uh, Italian cardinals, the Roman Curia draft for the council, they get completely just ripped apart. So those schemas get destroyed throughout the course of the council. The German and the French bishops end up allying themselves with the Brazilian bishops, and they kind of form a a uh, a party at the council, and um, it ends up becoming very much like a parliament rather than like an ecumenical council becomes more of like a parliamentary. You have the, the old school Italian cardinals versus these French and German and Brazilian bishops who are pushing new theology and they're pushing all these different types of stuff. And so the original schemas that are drafted, a lot of them are just scrapped. They're just said, let's, let's put, put aside all this old, you know, Thomistic theology stuff and let's embrace the modern world. And, and another aspect of it was we're going to make the council a pastoral council which no one really knows what that means. <laughs> what does it mean to have a pastoral council? I mean, it's pastoral for you to define all the dogmas and condemn and with anathemas. It's more pastoral to do that because at least, you know, yeah, I think <clears throat> von, uh, von Hildebrand has a, uh, a book called The Charitable Anathema, which is the uh, idea that anathemas are charitable because at least if you declare an anathema, you know you're wrong, right? The person who accepts the anathema knows he's wrong. Or the church literally condemns him. There are no anathemas made by Vatican II. There were all these documents that were very long-worded, uh, but no anathemas. And um, we have the spirit of a pastoral council 
that doesn't condemn communism, that doesn't make a clear definition on uh, Marian doctrine and declare the mediatrix of all graces, and opening the world to the modern world, uh, sorry, opening the church to the modern world, and um, and a lot of the documents get scrapped and get replaced by a lot of new theology, kind of ambiguous terminology in which the documents end up finding themselves. And you add on to that the ecumenical part of it, which is we're going to invite Protestants to, uh, they were invited to the council as, as onlookers. The Orthodox Church, which was run by the Soviets, they get some of their guys in. The French and the German bishops get to have their day with their new theology, and we have the documents get produced. And uh, in the 1969, we have the liturgy completely changed from top to bottom. Nearly everything's changed. And um, so it's, and, and then we have the church moving, moving forward from that. So what was hoped for by Cardinal Ottaviani and, and Cardinal Bacci and Ruffini and the, the guys in the Roman Curia at the time, the Italians, what they hoped for was that the council was going to be a reaffirmation of Vatican I. It was going to clearly define the dogmas of the church. It was going to condemn communism. It was going to make a declaration on Mary. And it was going to be this reaffirmation of traditional Catholic teaching, clear clarity, condemn this stuff. Let's get into the modern world, attack all the errors of the day, and the church is going to advance. What happened uh, besides, what ended up happening is it be it, it got hijacked by a lot of people who wanted to, you know, recreate it in their own image. It got hijacked by, um, you know, it was, it was so broad, it was so big, it was pastoral, it was uh, a lot of ambiguity, and... Um, yeah, it, it became, you know, it's, it's an ecumenical council and it's the documents are binding and valid, but um, a lot, uh, it didn't accomplish what John the Twenty Third originally attended, I think, and it didn't accomplish what the, the earlier cardinals thought, and uh, it led to a lot of confusion. And I think we're still living in the confusion of how to interpret this, this council. I mean, you end up having, I'll, I'll, I'll stop after this because I've gone on for uh, quite a while just to providing a, a backdrop. But you had after the council, because the documents were so ambiguous, you had two uh, rival groups that came out of the council. You had Concilium and you had um, Communio. So these were two groups of theologians that came out of the council with two different interpretations of how to interpret the Second Vatican Council because it was such a huge event opening the, world to the, opening the church to the modern world. The Concilium path, they took the council's spirit of modernizing and ambiguity and new theology and then went straight up heresy with it, like Hans Kuhn and these guys. They eventually denied the incarnation. They denied the virginity of Mary and they left the church. Some of them in concilium. Hans Kuhn and these other guys left the church. Huh. That should show you like the, the general trajectory of where the council was headed in its ambiguity and new theology and like French and German theology um, at the time. Now, not all French and German theology, but like that was the places where it was coming. Now, Communio, led by Ratzinger and de Lubach and other people, and I'm not saying they were great, they went down a path where like, oh, well, we should preserve some of the tradition and not just go off the rails like Kung and all these crazy, uh, you know, concilium guys. And so, but what ended up happening is in some respects, they would keep traditional like Thomism and other stuff. And then in other respects, they would like some of the new theology kind of Vatican II stuff. They definitely weren't like the old school guys like Ottaviani and Ruffini and, and Lefebvre and other people. They were definitely different. And uh, and then, I mean, you can see these in the papacies of uh, Benedict XVI and Francis of today that they both, I think, represent Communio and Concilium, um, respectively. Um, 
and you had you had John Paul II who really radically changed the idea of what a, what the papacy is. He reaffirmed a lot of the doctrines, um, but there's he definitely was very much in the council and the idea of the council. And uh, yeah, and so we're we're still trying to like figure out okay, what do we do with this huge event that is the Second Vatican Council? How do we interpret it? How do we go from here? And uh, acknowledging that there were some serious flaws in it. Um, they're not insurmountable and they're not like a denial of, of the faith. They're not flat out heresy or anything like that. But a lot was there that could have happened that didn't happen. And it's just kind of unfortunate. Do you think we'll ever see a third Vatican council? We might see a Pope come out and say Vatican II mm-hmm. obviously is, is true. And God, God wanted this council. And, and, um, but there are so many errors that ended up coming out of the council that we have a syllabus of errors post-Vatican II. So I've actually talked to a, a, a number of priests about this, that they think, no, we don't need a Vatican III. Actually, that'd probably be worse. If we had a Vatican III, it might reopen Making a lot of wounds. Make things more confused. it yeah. get way worse, right? <clears throat> but you could have a pope do like previous popes have done, like Pius X and Pashindi, and um, basically make a declaration saying, these are the errors, this is how we return. And I think that's a, a very a, a, a possibility. It's going to take a brave pope to do so. Um, but I, I think it's possible. I mean, I anyways, mean, that's that's a lot out there. I mean, so, Nick, what do you think? But do you think that by calling a, a massive council like a Vatican council, do you think that that has more of a chance of creating confusion or bringing things together or both? Yeah, that that question is not an easily answered one because you can look at if you look at the history of church councils. Generally speaking, they cause immediate confusion, but long term clarity. Right. Okay. Um, A great example would be like the Council of Chalcedon. On all accounts, the Council of Chalcedon was an absolute disaster. Where where did that take place? Chalcedon. Right, right. But (laughs) where is that? Chalcedon is over in the the (laughs) Middle East. It was was like early um, 4th century, so early 400s. I'm sorry, early 5th century, uh, so early 400s. Chalcedon, Alex is looking it up here. Asia Minor. Asia Minor. Minor. Mm -hmm. Um, So generally speaking, Church councils have the tendency to, in their immediate aftermath, provoke all kinds of dissent and confusion because the, the usually the scale of the things discussed at a church council um, is, is broad, right? You don't convene a council for nothing or for trivialties, right? Um, we've previously convened church councils for such enormous things as the nature of Christ, right? Like these are not simple things that we call church councils for. Um, and they often take centuries to unpack. So... Not knowing as much as some of my counterparts like Alex might about um, the nuances of Vatican II or the things which have occurred, I think it would be really difficult for me to say, put phrases with the question that you have uh, posed to me here, whether or not a council on the scale of Vatican II tends to lead towards uh, confusion or unity. kind of depends on the scale that you're looking at um, temporally in the next 50 years, the next 100 years, the next 200 years. Um, I don't really know, but I, I can say at least looking at the history of church councils that Vatican II has so far not deviated from the typical tendencies of church councils, which is to cause an uproar immediately afterwards. The discussion can be had about whether or not it's a new kind of uproar or maybe categorically different, um, but at least historically, the precedent is there. Yeah. No, that's that's a good point. Is I think another thing, too, because what was the year that Vatican II took place? 1960-something? Yeah, I think it was 62 to 65. Okay, so we have what war going on at that time. Okay, right? this is something interesting. The day after the first... Uh, oh, geez, I was just reading this today. So you had the opening of the council, you had the first general session, and then the second session they have, they they make this like 
It's called The Message to the World. I, I wasn't very a, a big fan of it, but uh, and neither was some of the bishops. Actually, there's a bishop of Liverpool wrote a little thing about like this message to the world. Like, why in the world are we writing a message to the world as our second thing we say? We haven't even said anything yet, and we're writing a message to the world. Anyway, so they write this message to the world. comes out the day before. The next day, the Cuban Missile Crisis happens. <laughs> <laughs> so, happy news to all the world. We're holding this Vatican Council. And then the Cuban Missile Crisis happens the next day, <laughs> right? And the whole world is like, we almost died, you know? Like, literally, we surrounded Cuba, right? And these Soviet warships are coming in, and we're, we're minutes away from hitting the nuke button. And the church is like, we have great news. We're bringing the church into the modern world. Oh, like, And the fact that we didn't get a condemnation of communism, like, okay, I can be salty about that, all right? <laughs> Look, I'll second that. <laughs> The fact Third that we that. didn't get a condemnation of communism so shows that there is some rot in the in the council. The fact that we were allying ourselves with the Kremlin, like the fact that we had a line of communication from the Vatican to Khrushchev, means there were Soviet spies like all throughout that line, and um, you know, it's just so sad because at the same time we had bishops in China and bishops in Vietnam who were being persecuted, and we had bishops. In Russia, Catholic bishops who had been sent to the gulags and were literally in the gulags at the time of the Second Vatican Council, and there was no condemnation of communism. Yeah. It's just unexcusable. And uh, or inexcusable. <laughs> That's what it is. One way or another. One way or another. I, I I'd say it's both. It's un mm. inexcusable. No, you're but, right. I, that's why I think communism might last forever, is just because of we've seen it through history. Yeah. Look what happened. It didn't get condemned. All right, so I want to bring something here that uh, I, I might bring this up in the debate as like defining what we mean by like modernizing the church was John the 23rd's opening speech to the second Vatican council and one particular part of it, which, which is this, the debate, sorry, Alex, the debate, this just reiterate this Sunday at 7 PM Gentile gallery. Everyone come, everyone Please come. be there. Please going to uh, be there. It's going to be it. really good. So he says the opportunists of holding the council is moreover venerable brethren. Uh, another subject which is useful to propose for your consideration. So this is John the 23rd speaking to the Second Vatican Council at the open. Namely, in order to render our joy more complete, we wish to narrate before this great assembly our assessment of the happy circumstances under which the ecumenical council commences. Notwithstanding, 13 days later, Cuban <laughs> Missile Crisis. Uh, in the daily exercise of our pastoral office, we sometimes have to listen, much to our regret, to voices of persons who, though burning with zeal, are not endowed with too much sense of discretion or measure. In these modern times, they can see nothing but prevarication and ruin. They say that our era, in comparison with past eras, is getting worse, and they behave as though they had learned nothing from history, which is, nonetheless, the teacher of life. They behave as though, at the time of former councils, everything was a full triumph for the Christian idea and life and for proper religious liberty. We feel we must disagree with these prophets of doom, who are always forecasting disaster, as though the end of the world were at hand. In the present order of things, divine providence is leading us to a new order of human relations, which by men's own efforts and even beyond their very expectations, are directed towards the fulfillment of God's superior and inscrutable designs. And everything, even human differences, leads to the greater good of the church. Comments from Mr. Larkins. The historical context of that statement makes it difficult to read without bursting into laughter. <laughs> Hence, um, yeah, there's some solid stuff said in there, right? Like prophets of doom don't necessarily want to do that. 
But <laughs> on the same hand, if doom is called for, the profit will probably arise as well. <laughs> Cuban <laughs> Missile Crisis. <laughs> <laughs> no, that ain't doom. That ain't doom. What do you, what do you make of that? Kellen Lake, how about that? Oh, yeah, first thoughts. I don't know. So he's giving the opening speech to the council. He's saying, look, I called this council because <clears> I, you know, I see all this like universal brotherhood and stuff. I don't know. Any more thoughts? Oh, yeah, plenty of them. Prophets of gloom or prophets of doom? Uh, you can translate it either way. Hmm. Divine providence is leading us to a new order of human relations, which by men's own efforts and beyond their very expectations are directed toward the fulfillment of God's superior and inscrutable designs. And everything we human, every and everything, even human differences, leads to the greater good of the church. That statement is easily the most charged one because the, the historical circumstances of the time prove that everything is the exact opposite. Like, if we just what, take what that... What are you saying there, though? Well, line by line real quick, right? So you've got, um, you know, oh, where are we at? <clears throat> Oh, sorry. Yeah, in the present order of things. So we got the present order of things, divine providence leading us to a new order of human relations. So the human relations he's speaking of, at least historically situated, would be globalism um, and the intense conflict that you have between nations like the USSR and the United States. By men's own efforts, so obviously the political diplomacy wasn't working particularly well. If 13 days from now we'd have one of the biggest nuclear crises of human history, and even beyond their very expectations, well, I, I would hardly say that the attempts at peace exceeded the expectations of those who wanted it. And they're directed toward the fulfillment of God's superior and inscrutable designs. That point's a little bit more difficult, honest to goodness, because at least eschatologically speaking, everything is ordered to God's superior and inscrutable designs. But that doesn't mean that all human action is ordered towards God's superior and inscrutable designs. Um, he makes all actions for his own ends, if you will, but not all actions are intrinsically ordered toward his own ends. So... Maybe eschatologically speaking, we can give the Pope some slack here, but otherwise that statement is inexcusable. And everything, even human differences, leads to the greater good of the church. In another context, right, maybe talking about the East and the West and the good that we have to learn from them. That might sound great. In the middle of the Cold War, with priests in the Gulag, faithful Catholics in the Gulag as well, not just priests, that's really hard to stomach. So I got to admit, there's some sympathy, I think, for Alex's reading into this. And uh, for show the, 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 the moderate, the church has always been through tough spot spots. It's going to get through this one mm-hmm. approach. Um, has its downsides as well because it tends to legitimately. I'm sorry, it tends to delegitimize the actual and horrendous experiences of those who suffered at the hands of, say, for example, communists uh, in Soviet Russia or in places like uh, Slovenia, w- without in any way, shape, or form bearing reference to the truth that these documents are attempting to go for. And that's that's real difficult to place in a kind of broader context. Or, or at least it's dangerous to do so. It's important to understand that the church isn't going to end tomorrow and that it is in fact the church instituted by Christ and it will, no, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But at the same time, we shouldn't pretend everything is all right because of that reality. Fair. <clears throat> Good point. No, I think this is kind of... Uh... I don't know it, it cuz so that was his opening speech right to the yeah, council part of it Is he directing is that kind of is it a charge against globalism like or 
you know, modernism, like what is he exact? I'm still confused. Cause like I was, I'm trying to comprehend it. What exactly is he addressing? Pessimistic so, traditionalism. Pessimistic traditionalism. I think so. <clears throat> Something along the lines of, of a, a pessimism about the dangers of the modern world. So meaning at least you could say he's, he's doing an, he's, he's saying an optimism about, I mean, he, he says, okay, well, there's the prophets of doom right, that see nothing in these modern times, they see nothing but prevarication and ruin. They say that in our era, in comparison with past eras, is getting worse. And they behave as if they had learned nothing from history. And they also behave as though former councils, everything was a full triumph for Christian idea in life and for proper religious liberty. I think it's a pretty bad argument. I mean, I understand what he's saying about like, okay, well, you, well, you guys just see nothing but, you know, terrible ruin in the, in the modern age. Which is like, uh, yeah, we probably should. I mean, communism is about to take over the world in the 1960s. And we just came off of two world wars, you know, in the last 50 years. And everything's changing. And, like, I mean, we should be pretty scared. I mean, prevarication and ruin. Things are rapidly changing. Now, a lot of people have interpreted this as Fatima. Because John the 23rd decided not to reveal the third secret in, in... in opposition to Mary's wishes uh, of Fatima. So we haven't discussed this, but the third secret of Fatima was meant to be revealed by the Pope in 1960. It was given to Lucia in 1918 as the the third and last secret. It was sealed and sent to Rome. And it was either at the death of Lucia, it was to be opened, or in 1960, whichever came first. 1959 rolls around and John XXIII is Pope. He decides to open the third secret of Fatima a year early. And the only people who were in the room with him were um, two Portuguese seminarians who were going to translate it, a few bishops, I think a cardinal, I think Malachi Martin, Father Malachi Martin. <clears throat> and uh, so they open the, the third secret and they read it. And uh, John the 23rd, 1959, so he opens it a year early, which he's not supposed to do, reads it and then says, I will not reveal this secret it does not concern my pontificate i never understood that so i mean no one really understood it um but i mean you fatima in a way is are, are prophets of doom the households the children the kind of and the message of mary it's prophets of doom because I mean, if you look sure. at it she says if you don't consecrate russia to my immaculate heart she will spread her errors throughout all the world and she sees you know uh souls falling like snowflakes to hell and I mean, that's a lot of doom. I don't see a lot of promise there. I, I'm not seeing the, you know, new order of human relations, which are all ordered to God's benefit, at, at least from Fatima. You're seeing a lot of, if you don't convert, and if you don't do reparation, and if you don't turn back to my immaculate heart, like, things are going to get really, 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 really bad. And so some people have said, okay, well, John the 23rd is talking about Fatima here. I don't know if he's talking about Fatima. It might be a part of it. Um. But anyways, he's saying we have to listen to these people who say it's getting worse, right? And I, and I think if you would have asked Pius X and Pius XI and Pius XII, and you said, like, hey, is it getting better or worse? They would all say it's getting worse. It, it's been getting worse for a long time. Like, it's been getting worse since the loss of the Papal States back in, like, 1860-something with the Italian Kingdom. Like, it's been getting worse for, for a long time. Now, it does see, do you see how it doesn't deal with the actual like facts of the thing? It just deals with a pessimism, pessimism or an optimism about reality, right? Yeah. 
Um, and this is ultimately, he's fighting against a pessimistic spirit of modern, of saying, well, the modern age presents a lot of problems and we have to really reaffirm the faith, right? That's, that's what he's saying is these prophets of doom. But what we're trying to do is institute a new order of human relations that even though it recognizes human differences, it's all ordered toward the good of the church. So this sets the spirit and the character of the council as being this pastoral council, as being, and we should really pause that, and everything, even human differences, leads to the greater good of the church. Okay, does other religions lead to the greater good of the church? No, they don't. And in fact, if you don't enter into the church, that's not leading to their salvation. There's no salvation outside of the church. So we need to convert these people. We shouldn't just be having coffee with them and like, oh, well, it's great. Love your love that you're a Muslim, um, you know, and you follow Muhammad and all this stuff. Um, so anyways, that's set the character and the spirit of the council is this pastoral council bringing us into the modern world, this kind of naive optimism and an idea that we're going to start doing concordats with Russia. We're going to be, you know, getting cozy with the communist. The reason we didn't condemn communism is because we made that link with the Kremlin. Hmm. Right. Yeah. That, right. Okay. And, uh, and the reason, you know, that <laughs> all this, this talk of like, well, the Catholic, so like Lumen Gentium talks about, well, the true church subsists in the Catholic church, which means it's, it's in the Catholic church, but it's different than the traditional is the true church of Christ is the Catholic church that you subsist in. It's a small, small distinction. It still means it is the church, but it's just like stuff like that characterized the council, this kind of ambiguity, because you didn't want to offend the people who we were supposed to be pastoral to, which is the pagans, the communists, the Muslims, the Hindus, everyone else. We're going to be more pastoral to them. We're not going to be so pessimistic and traditionalist and Thomistic and dogmatic and all this type of stuff. But that's just not Catholicism. I mean, we're <laughs> the Eucharist is a hard saying, right? Who can accept it? I mean, Jesus says it all the way back there. That was not very pastoral of him. In fact, it was very anti-pastoral of him to say... <laughs> This is my body. This is my blood. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him and will have eternal life. And then half, half of his disciples left him. And then it was so bad. Go ahead, Nick. Well, I was going to say that's an example of the human nature of Jesus being fallible. And I think we need to understand that. <laughs> <laughs> he's, jo he's joking. Jesus he's joking. in light of Hans Kuhn. That's right. That's right. We're, we're joking modernism here. Obviously, his humanity was not fallible. It's a joke, but it's brought up because there are people who do legitimately advance such a view. Hence heresy. <laughs> and so, and half of his disciples leave him. And, uh, and then he turns to his own apostles and says, will you also leave? And then Peter says, who, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Even Peter didn't really understand what he was talking about at the time, right? So, the church is necessarily non-acceptable. <laughs> That's just not acceptable to the world, I should say, right? Yeah. I mean, no, he says, right. if the world hates you, right. then you will know my, you're my disciples. Right. We're hearing this optimism of John the 23rd as if, if the world likes us, we're being pastoral. It's, I think it's just a, I think it's, uh, obviously it's not de facto like a heresy or anything. I just think it's a false spirit. I think it's, the, what you can classify as the false spirit of Vatican II to be, ecumenical and to be pastoral and to be non-dogmatic, no anathemas, ambiguous about what the truth is. And it just leads to confusion because the episcopate and the, the office of the bishop and of the pope is to preserve the doctrine of the faith. 
That's their primary thing is to pr- protect the deposit of faith. That's the reason why they're so like highly educated and highly trained. And, and that's their whole thing is to like excommunicate those within the church that are preaching heresy to evangelize the people and to govern the church and to teach and to sanctify. And uh, yeah, we just see kind of a failure of that at the second Vatican council, at least, at least to the point it's, you know, it's not a complete failure, but it's like the ambiguity present and the, you know, concordats with communism and the, all of this stuff, it's just, um, it doesn't, it doesn't lead to, you know, good for the church. It doesn't lead to the greater good of the church. What it really leads to is just a denial of the truths of the faith in practice. And the world's like, oh, well, you're going to play on our terms now. Like, okay, fun. Yeah. But the the world isn't going to be like, I mean, you talk with your atheist friend, they're always going to be showing you all the entailments of atheism. You know what I mean? Like, and if we as the church don't show you all the entailments of like, no church outside, outside the church, there's no salvation. The Eucharist is the true body and blood of Christ. If baptism, you need to be baptized and you need to believe in Christ and you have to stay away from mortal sin. If we don't like, if we put away those necessary parts of our faith and we say, well, you know, we don't need to preach against contraception. Like we don't need to preach against well, we're abortion. We're seeing this gradual stuff now happen though. We're, we're seeing, seeing it all, literally yeah, happening. Literally now. happening. There were a number of bishops. There were 69 bishops in the Episcopal Conference, uh, in the USCCB meeting, who said we don't need to be fighting abortion as a primary issue. 69 American bishops said abortion is not a primary issue. We need if to that deal with. isn't Where, what is. At what time was this said? Yesterday. <laughs> All right, sorry, I was hoping this might have been... Like 30 years ago or something. Well, not even 30 years ago would have been a problem, but if you had said this was like at the beginning of the council in 1960, right? Abortion was coming out, or at least it was the, the move towards ready, easy, accessible, on-demand abortion was present, but it was in its natal form, if you will, and so I could perhaps forgive that if it were... Fair, not ago. saying that, but it's not to what the extent it is now. Yeah, so. the, saying that yesterday, that's, I don't know how on earth you can say something like that. No, but it's bad, it, though. It it's, doesn't, they were saying it doesn't need to be our primary focus in engaging the world is to fight a, abortion. And it's just like. So, so Nick, uh, what do you think? Because of all these, it's gradually getting worse now. We're seeing, I don't know, you said something, Alex, about people getting they're even teaching it now in, in public or, or Catholic schools or something. This was retweeted. What is it? November 13th? November that was 14th. yesterday. Yeah. This is yeah, for this 14th. Uh, 13th is yesterday. Sorry. Yeah. This is almost, I'm almost, this is so trippy. This is almost like I'm reading this out of 1963, like the second Vatican council, Archbishop Gomez friends, in order to carry out the, our mission of evangelization, we have to be always trying to understand what God is saying to his. Sorry for this break here in the action. Uh, but unfortunately, some music started playing in the background, and you can't really hear what's being said, but we're going to hop right back in with the good old Nicholas Larkins. Orthodox and holy men and women of the Catholic Church uh, at all levels. Um, and maybe I should even say, irrespective of your level. Um, you, you might claim that a bishop can do more harm than a layman, so what does it matter if a hundred laymen in his diocese oppose abortion and the bishop affirms it? Um, and obviously, we should have solid ecclesiastical authority and that they have a particular position in the guidance of the lay faithful. Um, but it's inanity to propose that because you don't have some kind of ecclesiastical authority that you somehow matter less as far as the preservation of the truths of the church are concerned. And really complacency in the laity is what allows things like this to happen. Um, again, not advocating for the kind of radicalism that they had in the third century, but non-complacent laity 
is what allowed the church to thrive in the early Christianity. And I think if we can bring back that kind of idea of non-complacency, we'll see a change gradually in the right direction at all levels of the church. Agreed. There's something to be said about, like you were saying, with the laity has to preserve the faith no matter what. And, uh, but in the same regard, the role that hierarchy plays in you know, the hierarchy of being, as Thomas describes, that all things are, are ordered from God to the angels to man, and that man exists in hierarchy. That first in the uh, realm of the spiritual, we have the pope and the bishops and the clergy who we receive the graces and we receive Christ through their mediation and their office that Christ has established. And, um, and you know, the good things of the earth we receive through our, our hierarchical leaders in the, in, the, uh, you know, in the political realm, from the president and the legislature all the way down to where we are and our locale. And, um, and we receive the good things of the earth through God himself who created all things. So all the things that we receive are from hierarchy. We receive our being from our parents. We receive everything, right? It's, it's this reception in this hierarchy. And so the problem is it's the corruptima optima pessima, right? The corruption of the best is the worst. And so those who are higher up in the hierarchy are, are there to actualize the potentiality of those who are lower than them. So those who are higher, right, a father is meant to actualize the potency that is in his, his child, his son, let's say, right? So teaching him how to be a man and how to grow and to learn in virtue and to be in, and teach him in virtue, how to be a strong man, how to grow up in the faith. That is the father's primary act towards his child is to develop him in this way. Now, it may not completely work out because there's still free will, just like, you know, you may have the perfect saint pope, you know, who's who's reforming the church, there's still going to be people within that who are going to resist and be sinful. But the proper use of that hierarchy is to actualize this, this potency, this good that can be in the lower. So we all exist in that lower realm, let's say in the church. And, and so, you know, Paul talks about it to Timothy when he writes his letter. He says, if you, if you, you know, seek after the Episcopal office, you seek after a noble task, but do know, Timothy, that we will receive a harsher judgment. This is what Paul says is the burden of the bishops. And uh, Dante has many bishops in hell in his inferno that he, he walks past because Indeed. they receive a tough judgment because they're put over Christ's church and they are the shepherds. And, um, you know, even Christ says, uh, as it says in the scriptures, uh, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter, right? So when you have a shepherd that's leading people in the wrong, in the wrong direction, in the wrong way, I mean, just look at Arius. If you look at him as a priest, he was a priest. He literally took the whole church by storm with Arianism, the idea that Christ isn't really divine, but he's like the highest created being. That radically changed the church and, and turned a lot of people Arian and probably ended up with, you know, thousands of people dying as heretics and, and dying outside of the, the true faith. You know, God, God have mercy on their souls, but I mean, you look at Luther as well, who also was a, he's a priest, right? He wasn't just a friar. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, yeah, he, the harm he did with his, I mean, he was a brilliant man. He was very, very smart. Um, brilliant in the sense of he's very smart. I, I could be wrong. I don't know enough about Luther. He's stupid, all right? He's super stupid. <laughs> but the fact that he, like, launched the Protestant Reformation, and he did have some authority, okay? Um yeah, I disagree. He's stupid, all right? Everybody who... Protestants you're good, stupid. you're good. Anyways, no Calvin, need for retraction. Okay, yeah. Calvin was the intellectual behind the Protestant Reformation in a lot of ways. L okay. Luther, Luther 
was certainly an intelligent guy in a lot of ways. He had like most of the scriptures memorized in many senses. He had incredible. Yeah, I would agree with you that he was in, he was intelligent, Luther. Yeah, I mean yeah. he wasn't a but, but he mean, wasn't a dumb boy. You, but you read yeah. his essays and he's all over the map. He's unsystematic. He's inconsistent. He contradicts himself. Um, Calvin, with his Institutes of the Christian Religion, promotes the first systematic presentation of the logical conclusions of Protestant theology, and uh, that's really where you get the first intellectual driving force behind Protestantism. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's but the the role I mean in the fact that Calvin hopped on the on the train, right? And he used all of his his abilities in this kind of nefarious and evil way. You just see that when when the the top gets corrupt, it really does affect a lot of people. And the fact that, you know, we're having this conversation and and um, you know, seeing the truths of these things, there's been people in our lives that have taught the faith to us properly and have raised us in the faith. There's been books we've read. We've read Aquinas. We've read whatever else. We've kept the faith. There's been good priests and good pastors that have led us in the faith. And we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation if it was otherwise. And so we have to realize that we've been formed by hierarchy and we've been formed by those who've come before us. And I have numerous amazing priests who have really affected me in my life, Francis, you know, amazing you books. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's all this hierarchical mediation. So it's very, very sad when we see the corruption happening at the top. But, um, you know, we, we have to reclaim that, like Nick has been saying about, like, we, we're all going to have our particular roles. Um, if it means entering into the clergy, you know, I'm open to that or entering into the hierarchy or something uh, higher up in the church-specific the church specific order, there's a lot of good that can be done there, right? Jose Maria Escrivá says, you know, the the um, marriage is for the rank and file, and, and uh, the clerics are for the officers in Christ's army, because we are the church militant. And the priests are our leaders, and um, there, are, there are the clergy and the office that they play. I mean, you think about the role the apostles played in the early church um, going all the way back then. I mean, just think about when uh, Paul would go and preach and all the people would, you know, just be holding on to him saying, please don't leave us, Paul. Continue to teach us the faith of Christ. I mean, there's such a role of mediation that even St. Paul and these other people play. So we, we're all going to, as we're growing up, step into higher and higher roles of this hierarchical mediation, which requires us more attentiveness. It requires exactly what St. Peter says, right? Fratre sobrius tote et vigilate, qui adversarius vestris diablos tamquam leo rugiens, circuit, quenums quem divorit, qui resiste fortis in fide. The lion, that you need to be solid in your faith. Uh, resist the devil. Be solid in your faith because your opponent, the devil, is prowling like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him solid in your faith. So that that's like the call to your state in life is to be as holy as you can be in whatever state of life you are actualizing the potentiality of the good in those that are uh, that are under you, whether it's your children or even in your workplace or wherever you may be, and then being as holy as you can in your state in life, that's what we have to do. And pray for those who are above us, right? As St. Paul says, pray for those that are higher than you. And uh, yeah, if we're doing that, we're, we're accomplishing the will of the Lord. And, um, and you know, we, we need to pray for the Pope. We need to pray for, for all of them. I mean, they're going to receive a, a, a judgment on how they enacted their office. And, um, so we should always be praying for them and praying for the renewal in the church. Um, not always the reversion, but the renewal. Of the church. Um, yeah. And that's, that's has to be the primary focus. And, and I agree, like it can become, I think, especially for us Americans who are very passionate and, you know, Americans in general are, um, even Pope Francis has, has kind of condemned the, uh, the rash traditionalism that's coming in the church in America, which I don't see it as a bad thing. I see it as, 
people really embracing tradition again. And uh, we're seeing this all across the country. I think it's just, we want to be Catholic. The Catholics want to be Catholic. There's nothing wrong with that. The reason behind it. Right. Just as like when, when Trump came like, and people were like, yeah, I just want to be an American. I want to be a patriot. Like there's something so healthy and so good about that. And just saying I'm a Catholic and I want to be a Catholic. Like we've been brought up in this whole, like, you know, you got to say, well, oh, okay, this, this guy's a Muslim. And so we have to like, oh, we can't, we let him do whatever he wants to do. And we can't say anything about it, bad about Islam or anything else. And it's like, okay, well, I understand that. Obviously we don't want to be bashing on <laughs> Muslims or something like that. But like, why can't I just be a Catholic and like make a, make the sign of the cross at lunch, you know, in a public school or something like that. Like they literally are telling people like, don't make the sign of the cross before you pray and pray in school. Oh, you can't pray in school. You can't pray in school. You can't pray in public school, you know, and like pushing the faith further and further away. Like we got to be Catholic in public. We got to be Catholic in our, in all parts of our life and, and just say, I am a Catholic. I'm a Catholic Christian made in the image and likeness of God. Right. Renewing that public sphere of it. Um, all those things have to go into it. Uh, Nick, any final thoughts just on everything we kind of said, any kind of, future hopes for the, I mean, what do you think like future for the Catholic church? What do you, where do you think it's going? To heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kellen, you, you have a knack for asking me questions that I can't answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to wrap up uh, anyway. So, um, yeah, I, I would second a lot of the things that Alex has said. And I, and I think, I think a rediscovery of the holiness of the human person at all levels and at all spheres is incredibly important and undervalued in so many ways. And, if we any attempt we can bring to renew that will uh will in fact be for the betterment of the church that's all i'll say for now indeed indeed well thank you to alex denley and nicholas larkins for contributing to this awesome podcast as always we're going to end with a prayer in the name of the father son holy spirit amen saint michael the archangel defend us in battle be our, our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil, devil. May, may god, god rebuke him we humbly pray and do thou prince, prince of the heavenly host, host. By the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to WFRSCC 88.3. We will see you next Thursday. Thank you, guys. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this edition of the Kellen and Alex Show. We go live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on twitch.tv slash hingustringus. Uh, you can also find us on any of your streaming platforms. We publish our new episodes every Friday morning. Thank you so much for listening, guys, and God bless.